Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everyone, and welcome to episode 325 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. So Adam is on jury duty this week. He is not in the office. And so you just have me. So if that's a problem, you can just stop listening right now. I won't be offended, I promise. Um, because this is not the only part of the work I do here at Overdrive, I did not have... Uh, enough time really to try and find co-workers to do an episode with me this week. I will next week. But this week, um, you just have me, as I said, and we're going to be talking true crime, you know, because I was trying to think, what what should I talk about if it's just going to be me and Adam's not here? And Adam actually, I think jokingly, suggested I talk about courtroom drama and suspense books. Um which I just sort of thought was funny, but I don't know enough about that particular genre. Um, so we're instead going to talk about a genre I am familiar with, which is true crime. So that's what all this episode is about, is some of my favorite true crime books, as well as some true crime books that come out later this year um, that I have not read yet, but sound really good. And, you know, you can hopefully by listening now, um, get on the wait lists for them or recommend them to your library if they don't have them. And along with that, of course, the um, titles for all the books will be in our show notes, so you don't have to sort of scramble to try and write them all down if you're driving or working out or whatever while you're listening to this episode. Um, All right, so before I get into that, of course, we have some general housekeeping, as we always do. Um, If you want to get a hold of us, you can go to our website, professionalbooknerds.com. There are our social links are all there. We are on Instagram and Twitter at... Book Nerds, and you can email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. If you have your own uh, true crime books that you love, please feel free to send them along because I'm always looking for more to read. We also have Big Library Read going on right now. If you go to your library's Overdrive website um, and they are participating in Big Library Read, you'll be able to check out this, um, uh, this season's Big Library Green Book, which is Holmes. It is a tale of Abubakar and his story of being a refugee, um, a Syrian refugee who moves to Canada. It's a memoir. He wrote it with his um, uh, English as a second language teacher, uh, Winnie. He, in our interview with him, which we posted last Saturday, he called her Miss Winnie, which is just adorable. So that's available now through April 15th. So go check out your um, Overdrive's your library's Overdrive website to check out homes, and then you can go to biglibraryread.com. We have a big uh, discussion board going on with a lot of people um, talking about the book, which is pretty active, so that's really exciting as well. I don't have Adam here to confirm that's all the housekeeping stuff, so I'm just going to trust my instincts that it is. All right, so going into true crime. Let's get started. All right, first up, this is a book I've, I'm pretty sure I've hopefully have kept 
all these ones I've not talked about because I don't want to like bore you with books I've already talked about. But this one I have to talk about. And it's I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. I've mentioned it frequently over the last couple months because I read it at the beginning of the year. It was so good. This is about uh, Michelle looking into the Golden State Killer. And it's part memoir. It's part detective story. It is um, her talking about both the writing process, the research process, all of this. It's a phenomenal book. Michelle, of course, died before the book was finished. And so it was picked up and... and um, written uh, with the assistance and finished with the assistance of two other uh, writers and um, people who were involved in investigating um, the Golden State Killer. So if you have not read this, it's fantastic. I highly recommend it. Um, And that is I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. So next on my list is American Fire by Monica Hess. Um, This is about a series of fires that started in Accomack County um, and just kind of kept going. Um, they started in on a cold November night uh, and did not stop for months. Night after night, the people of Accomack County waited to see which building would burn down next, regarding each other at first with compassion and then suspicion. Vigilante groups sprung up, patrolling the uh, Virginia coast with cameras and camouflage, Volunteer firefighters slept at their stations. The arsonists seemed to target abandoned buildings, but local police were stretched too thin to unveil them all. Accomack was desolate. There were hundreds of abandoned buildings, and by the dozen, they were burning. So this um, book kind of brings to um, life what that was like for the people of Accomack County, um, tracing, you know, their relationships as they changed, as this continued and not knowing who to trust, um, has also sort of along in that story weaves in the story and history of arson in the United States. And this, uh, the book, um, recreates the anguish nights, this quiet county lit up in flames, evoking a microcosm of rural America and land half gutted before the fires even began. So, uh, arson not really one you usually see in true crime but here we go that's american fire by monica hess um next up we have the real lolita by sari weinman i think i've talked before about how i um am someone who actually really loves the book lolita which i know is a controversial statement i mostly love it of course for nabokov's writing um and the story itself is, of course, really terrible. Um, we have this unreliable narrator, and he just does devastating things to this this girl, Lolita um, Dolly. But, of course, he's telling the story, and so we get his point of view. This is actually based on a true story. Um, the real girl um, was 11 years old. She was named Sally Horner, and in 1948, she was abducted. And in this book, The Real Lolita, Sally Horner, uh, um, I mean, um, Sarah Weinman tells Sally's story for the first time, the full story. She draws on extensive investigations, legal documents, old news stories, public records, and interviews with remaining relatives to sort of establish how much Nabokov knew of Sally Horner and the efforts he took when writing to disguise 
and not make it so obvious that he was sort of, you know, telling her story. Um, and as she kind of walks us through Sally's story, uh, Weinman takes us on a journey of what mid-century America was like at that time. You know, this idea of this road trip and seeing the world um, from Sally's home in Camden, New Jersey, to her place of rescue in California, and then back to the East Coast again. Um because this book is based on a true story, because Lolita was based on a true story, I think it's actually really important that Sally's story is is heard and told and we know what happened. And of course, because this is a nonfiction book, we're not hearing it from her very biased and unreliable abductor's point of view, like in Lolita. So this is The um, Real Lolita by Sarah Weinman. All right, so forget what I just said, you know, about that whole, like, arson not being a popular true crime uh, topic, because I have another book about arson, which is called Burned, a story of murder and the crime that wasn't by Edward Humes. So in April 1989, Joanne Park survived a house fire that claimed the life of her three small children. At first, the fire was seen as a tragic accident, but then investigators soon started to report finding evidence that showed um, she sabotaged wiring, set some of the fires herself, and even barricaded her four-year-old son inside a closet so he could not escape the fire. She insisted she did nothing wrong, but she was um, found guilty and given a life sentence without parole based on uh, forensic evidence of, um, of fire science. 25 years later, however, um, upgrades, of course, and changes and, and new technology um, in the science of fire has started to sort of expose and poke holes in um, this story that was shown that, you know, said that she did it. And that a lot of what was taken as fact back in 1989 was actually more like guesswork. So the California Innocence Project is challenging um, her conviction and the so-called science behind it, claiming that false assumptions and outright bias uh, convicted an innocent mother of a crime that never actually happened. So this is sort of um, the story of Joanne Parks, um, the night that her three children died, um, and then looking at the the case that the um, Innocence Project is working on and that element of it, you know, like can prosecutors come back and have evidence that actually does show that they were right the first time? Can the Innocence Project find information that will be able to free her? Um, this is really kind of like a, a last-ditch effort for her freedom and we are kind of taken along for the ride in this book. So that is Burned by Edward Humes. Next up, we have Killers of the Flower Moon by David Gran. Um, so back in the 1920s, the richest people per capita in the world were members of the Osage Indian Nation in Oklahoma. After oil was discovered beneath their land, they rode in chauffeured automobiles, built mansions, and sent their children to study in Europe. Then one by one, the Osage began to be killed off. The family of an Osage woman, Molly Burkhart, became a prime target. Her relatives were shot and poisoned, and it was just the beginning, as more and more members of the tribe began to die under mysteri mysterious circumstances. 
In this last remnant of the Wild West, where oilmen like J.P. Getty made their fortunes and where desperados like Alan Spencer roamed, many of those who dared to investigate the Kildanes were themselves murdered. As the death toll climbed to more than 24, the FBI took over the case. And it was one of the organization's first major homicide investigations, and the Bureau badly bungled the case. In desperation, the young director, J. Edgar Hoover, turned to a former Texas Ranger named Tom White to unravel the mystery. White put together an undercover team, including one of the only American Indian agents in the Bureau. The agents infiltrated the region, struggling to adopt to the latest te- techniques of investigation. Together with the Osage, they began to expose one of the most chilling conspiracies in American history. So in um, his book, Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, David Graham kind of goes back and revisits this shocking uh, series of crimes, um, the way the FBI messed up, um, the conspiracy to cover all of this up. And it reads like narrative nonfiction, which is always one of my favorites because um, it doesn't it feels like you're almost reading a novel, except this is 100 percent true. So it's Killers of the Flower Moon by David Graham. Next up, we have Lucky by Alice Siebold. So Alice um, wrote The Lovely Bones, uh, which is about a young girl um, who is telling her story from beyond the grave. And in this memoir, Alice uh, Siebold recounts her own rape at the age of 18 um, and how her life was utterly uh, transformed. There's this really powerful quote on the cover of the book, which says that, before she was raped, um, there was a young girl who had been killed and I believe dismembered in the same tunnel where Siebold was raped. And because she got out of it alive, she was called Lucky, which is where the, the title of her memoir comes from. Um, and so this sort of chronicles uh, the sexual assault and its aftermath and Siebold's fight um, to secure her rapist's arrest and conviction and kind of come to terms with how this one event has affected her entire life. It was um, first published years and years ago, but recently was reissued with a new afterword by her. Um, and, you know, this is a story that obviously still has um, importance now as we're sort of dealing with a lot of similar issues um, in terms of young girls having to go through this and, and surviving it. So that's Lucky by Alice Siebold. Um, I think. Oh, okay. I'm waiting for all my serial killer ones to go at the end. That's why I'm sort of like, I don't know what I'm talking about. I did not put this in order in advance. All right. This one is a little, uh, it's still true crime, but not in the way you would expect. This is called The Castle on Sunset, Life, Death, Art, and Scandal at Hollywood's Chateau Marmont. It's by Sean Levy. It comes out in May. So for those who are not familiar, um, the Chateau Marmont is a Hollywood hotel that is incredibly glamorous and for nine years has sort of acted as this place for Hollywood's brightest celebrities to go and keep it as their home away from home. It is an apartment house turned hotel and it's been the uh, backdrop for generations of gossip and folklore. In the 1930s, bombshell Jean Harlow took lovers during her third honeymoon there. Uh, Director Nicholas Ray slept with a 16-year-old rebel without a cause star Natalie Wood um, Anthony Perkins and Tab Hunter met poolside and began a secret affair. Jim Morrison swung from the balconies. Um, John Belushi had his fatal overdose in a private bungalow there. And Lindsay Lohan got 
kicked out after racking up nearly $50,000 in charges in less than two months. So it's perched above uh, Sunset Strip. It feels like a big fairy tale castle. But um, the chateau seems to kind of come from this other world. And inside it, though, there's this like really interesting history. And a lot of things have happened there that um, are very scandalous. And it appeals to the rich and famous, not just for its ambience, but also its seclusion. Much of what happened inside the chateau's walls have um, eluded the public eye until now when, you know, Levy has kind of um, able to get inside and look at the births and the deaths and the marital breakdowns, but also the creative breakthroughs that have happened. So again, it's not really true crime in the way you would necessarily think about it, but it's like scandalous. I mean, you know, stuff happened there. Maybe illicit stuff. So I'm, whatever, I'm counting it. Whatever's my list. Um, So that's The Castle and Sunset by Sean Levy. Right, next, I have The Lazarus, Lazarus File by Matthew um, McGough. So in uh, February of 1986, 24-year-old newlywed Sherry Rasmussen was murdered in her home, in the home she shared with her husband, John. Crime scenes are just a ferocious struggle, and peace, police initially assumed it was a burglary gone awry. For her death, Sherry had confided to her parents that an ex-girlfriend of her husband's, um, a Los Angeles police officer, threatened her. Uh, Her parents urged the LAPD to investigate the ex-girlfriend, but the original detectives only pursued burglary suspects, and the case went cold. DNA analysis did not exist when Sherry was murdered. Decades later, though, a swab from a bite mark on Sherry's arm revealed her killer was, in fact, female, not male. A DNA match led to the arrest and conviction of a veteran LAPD Steph, uh, detective Stephanie Lazarus, John's one-time girlfriend. So the Lazarus file kind of um, delves into this real-life murder mystery. Um, he, the author reconstructs the lives of Sherry, John, and Stephanie, the love triangle that led to Sherry's murder, and the homicide investigation that, uh, that followed. You know, asking questions like, was Sherry protected by her fellow officers? What did the LAPD know? What didn't they know? Are there other LAPD cold cases where police are connected but remain unsolved? You know, is there a conspiracy going on? So, crazy stuff, man. So, that's Lazarus File by Matthew um, McGough. All right. That, I believe, is all of my non-serial killer um, true crime books. I wanted to save them all for the end, all together, all my serial killer, you know, fans. Fans is not the right word. That's not the right word at all, but you know what I mean. All right. So first, of course, if we're going to talk about serial killers and books, we have to sort of start with one that is very much a classic in the world of serial killer um, nonfiction books, which is The Stranger Beside Me by Anne Rule. So Anne... Um, is well known, very well known, in the world of true crime books. She's written like dozens. And one of the ones she's probably most well known for is The Stranger Beside Me. Um, she uh, was working on um, the biggest case of her, the biggest story of her career. She was following, um, she was trailing the victims of this really brutal serial killer. Little did she know that um, the savage slayer she was following was a young man 
that she counted among her closest friends. And that would be Ted Bundy. Anne um, knew and worked with Bundy and had no idea that Bundy was um, the guy terrorizing uh, the world, the United States, um, of at least 35 women coast to coast. So Anne, you know, in this way, sort of tells that story, both the story of Ted Bundy and also her experiences of realizing that this man she thought she knew really well, she had actually no idea who he was, um, and that this whole time there was this stranger beside her. All right, so next up I have um, A Serial Killer's Daughter by Carrie Rawson. So Carrie um, is actually the daughter of the BTK killer, uh, a bit of a tongue twister i had to like start recording this part over again um the btk killer got his name based on the his mo basically of how he committed his crimes which is bind torture and kill um so carrie you know it's 2005 carrie gets this knock on the door when she opens it there's an fbi agent informing her that her father had just been arrested for murdering 10 people including two children um you know for the nation and uh, Wichita in particular, this was fantastic news because this serial killer had just been caught. Um, the nightmare would end. But of course, for Carrie, you know, the nightmare is just beginning because she has to sort of reckon with the fact that her dad, um, this loving father, a devoted husband to her mother, he was a church president, a Boy Scout leader and a public servant, you know, Aside from all that, he had done these really, really horrific things and is now known as one of America's most infamous killers. And so this is sort of her story of what that was like. Um, you know, like, where do you go from there when you find out that your parent has just done these really awful things and is now notoriously known as um, a serial killer? So this is... um. Carrie's story and is a serial killer's daughter by Carrie Rossum. And finally, I actually have a graphic novel for you. So this is My Friend Dahmer by Durf uh, Beckdurf. So this is actually the story. Actually, I have, I have to back up a little bit. So um, I we here in uh, the Overdrive offices, the professional book nerds where we you know work, is in Cleveland, and um, there was a time when uh, Jeffrey Dahmer lived in in the northeast ohio area i remember i came across this information in a book of course i came across it in a book um i think <laughs> i think it was that weird ohio book right they have one i think for all the 50 states where it's just sort of like all about the weird facts of your state and um i was probably in I don't know, high school college um and i remember talking to my mom i was like why did i not know that jeffrey dahmer grew up like just a couple miles away my mom just sort of looked at me and was like that's not really something we would have told our kids all right mom fair enough so um Durf is actually um was a classmate of of Jeffrey Dahmer's he was a friend of his and for you know the world sort of knew Jeffrey Dahmer after all of his um really horrific crimes um the world knew him as just a serial killer figure and he was sort of reduced to 
he was reduced to his crimes, which is entirely fair. Um, but for Durf, you know, this was a kid he knew in high school. He was friends with. He hung out with him. And for him, um, Dahmer was a completely different character. That's not really what he was like. That wasn't how he knew him. And so this graphic novel, um, the writer and artist, uh, Durf, tries to give a surprisingly sympathetic portrayal of this disturbed young man who is just dealing with all of these really morbid questions and urges. And it's, you know, about a a shy kid teenager trying to sort of reconcile all of this stuff about himself he's not really sure what to do with. So it's not true crime in that it doesn't, it actually, the story, the book ends um, before uh, Dahmer actually commits his first crime. But it's sort of a backstory, I guess, into the the true crime story that is Jeffrey Dahmer. So, wow, that's like almost 30 minutes of me talking about true crime. Hopefully you are not bored. Um, so again, if you have more true crime books that you would love to share with me, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ProBookNerds. Um, email us, professionalbooknerdsoverdrive.com, all that fun stuff. And hopefully you found some um, true crime books to get you through the weekend. All right, everyone. Bye. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Rakuten Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.